The veil is torn in two. These words might not mean much to you out of context, but they sure mean a great deal. If you are a Jew who's messianic and has met Yeshua as Savior and Lord. You see, Yom Kippur is celebrated this week, one of the most prominent high holy days of Judaism. Hi, I'm Charles Morris, and you're listening to The Great Stories Podcast. This week, I have a few guests who all have something in common. They're Messianic Jews. In just a moment, you'll get to hear their stories against the backdrop of the Jewish High Holy Days or Feasts of Israel. These annual feasts offer significant insight into the Jewish roots of our Christian faith. And I'm excited for you to learn how each of these feasts are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In fact, the Gospel of John devotes some significant space to prove this. Well, more on that later. But for now, let's hear how some of these Jews met Jesus, as they also teach us how Yom Kippur, Passover, and the other high holy days of Israel are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Welcome to Haven Today, and these are High Holy Days, as they are called in Judaism. And so on the program this week, we're talking about what that means, how that relates to Christians, and how that relates to people who are Jews and not followers of Yeshua as the Messiah. So on the line with us is the senior researcher from Jews for Jesus in San Francisco, Dr. Rich Robinson. Rich, welcome to the program. Thank you, Charles. It's great to be with you today. It is so good to have you on from the Jews for Jesus headquarters. Let's just get down to business here. These are high holy days, and actually that started last week. You want to just tell us what we're going through right now on the Jewish calendar? The high holy days is the holiest time of the Jewish year, and the Jewish calendar consists basically, you've got two holidays going on. You've got Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. Biblically, it was the Feast of Trumpets, or Yom Teruah, but today it's become known as the Jewish New Year. And um, it begins a a period of 10 days that's called the Days of Awe, as in A-W-E, Awe. Mm. And um, it's a time when you're supposed to be um, reflective and repent of your sins. Uh, But the first part of this period, Rosh Hashanah, is a little more joyful. You wish one another a Happy New Year. You traditionally eat apples dipped in honey. And, um, of course, you hear the blowing of the ram's horn, the shofar, Mm -hmm. which is uh, a call to repentance. Rich, uh, we started these High Holy Days last Wednesday. You just said this is the beginning of the new year. Why not January 1st? Well, the Jewish calendar is different than the general calendar that we use. Basically, the, the rabbis traditionally said there were four new years uh, in the Bible. We read about one of them in the springtime when we have the, uh, the month of Nisan, which is when Passover occurs. And even though this month, Tishri, is the seventh month biblically, it's considered uh, these days to be the Jewish New Year. We're not quite sure of when that change might have happened, Mm. perhaps uh, during the Babylonian exile. But today, it does begin in the month of Tishri in the fall. Mm -hmm. And the Jewish calendar is a lunar, not a solar calendar, so... The different Jewish holidays do move around 
uh, on the general calendar a little bit from year to year. So there are those differences. I see. Okay. Now, you mentioned that uh, Rosh Hashanah is joyful at the beginning of the 10 days. So pick it up from there because there is another name, too, that comes at the end. Well, there's a second holiday 10 days after Rosh Hashanah, which is Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement, and it's the most um, serious or solemn day on the Jewish calendar. There's a biblical commandment to afflict yourselves on this day, and that has been interpreted to mean fasting. So observant Jewish people will fast uh, for, for the day of Yom Kippur. And um, you go to the synagogue, and you pray prayers uh, all day long, or as long as you're there for, asking God to forgive your sins. And uh, there, there's a whole liturgy for this, a really a very beautiful liturgy with uh, chanting and and special prayers. And I have to say this is probably, uh, for both of these holidays, probably the, the time of year when Jewish people who might not attend a synagogue uh, at other times will at least attend on these days because uh, the force of tradition is very strong for uh, a lot of otherwise uh, secular Jewish people. And, and that's a very good point that we should bring up. Uh, this is not Israel. Uh, this is the U.S. where you live. We're also on in Canada. Not every Jew is an observant Jew, but yet some even non-observant Jews would still recognize uh, Passover maybe and have a Seder. Uh, what's the breakdown here? Who, who's religious? Who's only Jewish by birth? Well, in this country, um, maybe between 10 and 20 percent of Jews would be considered Orthodox uh, by affiliation with their with their synagogue, with an Orthodox synagogue. About a third of Jews equally are part of the Reform movement, which is the most liberal of the three main branches. And in the middle, you have conservative, which is also about the thirty percent or about a third of the Jewish people in this country. A little more than thirty percent, but mm. about a third. And then you have others who just identify as just Jewish or, or something along those lines. And interestingly, even in Israel, the majority of Jewish people are secular uh, over there. Um, and the religious uh, Orthodox are, are a minority in Israel as well. So I think that's pretty much a worldwide trend. Okay. Um, it's only certain locations like New York City has seen an upswing in the number of the uh, Orthodox observant uh, Jewish population. Hmm. But um, nationwide, certainly, um, it's not the case. Now, we're really moving into a history lesson, but this is very, very interesting because I, I think many of us, especially Gentiles who are listening, which would be most people listening to the program today, may not know all of this about Judaism. But I, I need to insert here because I've been dying to get you to share this for years. You may live in San Francisco and be on the leadership team at Jews for Jesus, but uh, you were a good Jewish boy from Brooklyn, right? I am. <laughs> you are. That's right. That's where I grew up. I was born in the Bronx in New York, but grew up uh, as a child in Brooklyn. Absolutely. And when I go back there, you can still tell from my accent, which gets stronger once I'm back in New York. That's right. That's right. You've, you've, been, you've received a dose of California for the last several years. That's right. How exactly. did you meet Yeshua? How did Jesus become your Lord and Savior? 
it was a pretty uh, long journey for me over several years. See, my, my upbringing in New York was in Reform Judaism, which meant that, you know, pretty much we were culturally Jewish. We certainly celebrated some of the holidays like Passover and Hanukkah and the High Holy Days, the holiday period that we're in the midst of right now. But it wasn't uh, so much of a religious occasion as it was just a, a cultural time. My mm-hmm. grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was the main, the main religious influence in, uh, in our family. Uh, it was because of him that I learned some of the basic Hebrew prayers and prepared for my bar mitzvah at age 13. But God never really was, um, was never really front and center or, or even peripheral in, mm-hmm. in many cases when I was growing up. And pretty much by the time I was in high school, I was on some sort of a spiritual search. I I wouldn't have called it that at the time, but I was just looking for what was real about life. And here's the thing, Charles, is that in today's Jewish community, almost any spirituality goes except for Jesus. Jesus is still the Mm. big no. Mm. But you find Jews who are involved in Eastern religions, Jews who are involved in New Age, Jews who are involved in Buddhism. You come right out here to San Francisco, you got quite a significant number of Jews who are Buddhists. And um, I mean, they even call themselves Jubus. Uh, it's <laughs> not a joke, that's for real. And they're Sorry to laugh, this. but you brought it up, not me. <laughs> no, it's, 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 uh, it's the name. And, um, mm. you know, I was exploring through high school, um, several different spiritualities. I was studying the writings of a man called Edgar Cayce. Yes, yes. Who uh, might be known to, to uh, maybe more of an older generation, kind of a clairvoyant or psychic. Mm-hmm. But in all the things that he said, he even said some things about Jesus, which intrigued me as a teenager. Hmm. And sometimes I just think that, you know, God was bringing me to faith in him through, through some kind of a back door Because if someone had just walked up to me and said, you know, maybe a church person, and said, you need to believe in Jesus, I would have said, I'm Jewish, end of story, go away. Because as Jews, we're we're basically taught that the Jesus that Christians know is not for us. The the Mm. Trinity, Mm. the incarnation, that's not for Jews. But we had never been told to avoid a Jesus who was much more New Agey or Eastern. Mm. In fact, that might have been... Okay, wow. given the climate of the spirituality in, in the secular Jewish community. So I pursued Edgar Casey. He got me interested in Jesus a little bit. Not the Jesus of the Bible, but sort of his own version. And of course, that, that really didn't lead me anywhere. So I continued my spiritual exploration in college as well. I Remember, I was a, a member of the Jewish student group, Hillel, mm-hmm. at the same time that I was uh, studying Eastern religions, taking courses on religion. And um, finally, I was really desperate at this point in my life for truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I know truth is not on the burner for a lot of people today, but mm-hmm. for me, that was the issue. Was Jesus who... Christians were saying he is, is Jesus who Edgar Casey was saying he is. Um, I just wanted to know. And I figured there was one truth for Jews and Gentiles, so as long as I got to the bottom of the matter, I would be doing what I ought to do. 
Now, I had already heard the gospel from some Christians I met on the campus. Okay. But, you know, I, I was going my own way. And I tried to do yoga. I bought a book with all the positions you have to twist into and discovered <laughs> I really wasn't that flexible. Couldn't get into those positions. Wasn't going to work. And I, I just kept on questioning and pursuing and finally talking with uh, some of these Christian friends a little bit more about who Jesus was. Well, long story short, I think I argued with one of these friends for the better part of my uh, sophomore year in college. And at the end of that year, after thinking and talking and reading, uh, looking at the Bible, looking at other uh, spiritual sources, I just became convinced that the Bible presented the true Jesus and that I just needed to give my life to him as the atonement for my sins, mm. which is something Edgar Cayce had never talked about. You know, Sin was not really right. um, a part of his vocabulary, not in the way the Bible presents it. Well, I did come to faith at the end of, uh, I guess that was my sophomore year. And this was, this was upstate New York. This was at Syracuse University. Heavy Jewish which had student about population. A very heavily Jewish school. About a third of the students at least were Jewish. And I got very excited about my faith as a new believer. Uh, you know, I, I'm not the kind of person that gets excited about a lot of things. But something just obviously, you know, from the standpoint of those of us who, who believe in Jesus, something had changed. Mm. Um, mm. I was now in a relationship with God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we say in the liturgy. And I felt myself to be the kind of Jew that God really wanted me to be, that he intended for me to be. Mm. Got into discussions with the campus rabbi. I have to tell you, this was the year, I didn't really know about it, but this was 1973. Uh -huh. And there was an evangelical outreach that year called Key 73. I didn't know a whole lot about it, except the one thing I, I know is that there was a slogan that they had called, I found it, and people yes. had their bumper stickers, I found it. And the Jewish community responded with a bumper sticker that said something like, we never lost it, or something like that. Right. And a lot of fun. And um, kind of in response to this, the rabbi started offering weekly classes that he called Answers to Jesus Freaks, <laughs> kind of the, <laughs> of the name that was used um, either positively or negatively about Christians back in the right. early 70s. Right. And unfortunately, after the first class, everyone lost interest except me and the rabbi. And so I just met with him here in his office. Wow. Two of us going together. A lot of fun. He was not too happy, but the Lord is happy. He claimed lost sheep, and you're in the fold today. Rich, uh, before we go, I want to ask you a question that uh, I ask most people that we have here on the program. You're a believer in Yeshua now. What does Jesus mean to you? It's a great question. You know, when I first came to faith in Jesus, I, I felt like I had found the foundation of existence. I felt like I had really come to know what my life was really about, what any of our lives are really all about. But as a Jewish person, I, I also came to believe and to understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of the hopes of my Jewish people, that believing in him made me the kind of Jewish person that God wanted me to be. And I think that he also got me very excited about sharing what I believed and what I had found with other people as well. And so that was a big, that was a big part of my life uh, early on as a new believer also. Mm. 
um, what he means to me. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. Uh, he's the, the reason for existence. He's, you know, what brings it all together. He's, he's the hope for this world. I mean, you know, my, my heart is especially with the nation of Israel, seeing everything that's going on there, seeing how secular the country is, uh, seeing how embattled it is. And I believe he is the only hope for everlasting peace in that part of the world or any other part of the world. Um, at Jews for Jesus, we've actually developed a very extensive evangelistic work in Israel based out of Tel Aviv. And my hope and my prayer is that they will see that we, we phrased it this way on one of our communications. The only hope for peace was born in the Middle East, meaning, mm. of course, <laughs> Yeshua. Amen. So, yeah, that's what all he means to me, Charles. Great. Dr. Rich Robinson, he's the senior researcher, part of the leadership team of Jews for Jesus. Rich, we had you share your story, your life story with us, and we're in the middle of High Holy Days which you told us earlier was a joyous time. But then you said it gets more serious because there's a time at the end of the Jewish New Year. You want to explain to us about Yom Kippur and then how that relates not just to the Hebrew Bible, but how that relates to Jesus Christ. Well, sure, Charles. Um, let me just clarify one thing, and that okay. is that really the entire period is a time of reflection and repentance. In fact, even before... Even before these holidays begin, you enter um, a time of um, reflection. Okay. So the, the uh, joyousness really uh, just is meant to surround the, uh, the first day of this holiday season, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, because we're wishing one another a sweet New Year. And we also say, uh, as part of the greeting, may you be inscribed for a good year. May you be inscribed. Because the traditional idea is that God keeps a book of life, which is actually a biblical uh, image. Right. And that during this season, we repent and pray to God and thereby hope that he will forgive our sins and enter us for one more year ahead of us in his book of life. Mm. And for um, religious Jews, this, this, this could be a very, a very serious time, a very deep time of repentance um, and I suppose even for secular Jews, it's about the only time of year when someone might be thinking about sin, which might just be dismissed at other times mm. of year. Mm. This time of year, it gets a bit more serious treatment and, and people are more attuned to the possibility that, you know, we've offended others, we've offended God. Mm. And, and Rich, where does this come from in the Hebrew Bible, Yom Kippur? Well, it's found actually um, in the third book of the Hebrew Bible, the book of Leviticus, in chapter 16, which gives detailed instructions for how this holiday is to be conducted back in those days when we had a, a tabernacle and then a temple after that, a, a permanent structure, mm -hmm. and when we had priests officiating and when we brought animal sacrifices for the atonement of our sins. Now, today, of course, the Jewish community has none of those things. There's no temple in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. There are families such as my own, actually, that by family tradition, we know uh, we're kohanim, we're priests, but we don't officiate at an altar today. We mm -hmm. get certain honors in the synagogue service, and we don't offer animal sacrifices, but rather today, uh, since the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD, 
about 40 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. Without the temple, a new theology developed, whereby today, if you ask a religious uh, Jewish person how your sins are forgiven, Hmm. well, they'll tell you by prayer, by repentance, by deeds of charity, by fasting, this is how God will forgive our sins. Hmm. And therefore, you fast on Yom Kippur, you fast on this day, and you repent of your sins, and the belief is that this should be sufficient to have uh, atonement for our sins. But the whole idea is very biblically rooted, you know. We are alienated from God, we've sinned against God, we've sinned against our neighbor, uh, we've sinned against ourselves, we've sinned against the environment, and this becomes a day when we look to make that right. Mm. That's basically the idea behind Yom Kippur. And, And all of that is a very, very worthy goal. But let's flip over to the New Testament. How do we find Jesus? Well, he's actually part of the fulfillment of this entire season of the year. The New Testament tells us that Jesus came as the atonement for our sins. And even though Jewish theology today says that we we do not need to have an atonement through sacrifices, the biblical picture is a, is a little bit different and tells us that repentance is not enough in and of itself, but that there does need to be a sacrifice for our sins, that Yeshua, or Jesus, came as the sacrifice, as the atonement uh, for our sins. He's portrayed that way throughout the New Testament, and he's portrayed that way in the book of Hebrews, as well as other aspects of the Day of Atonement being uh, being applied to him there. But maybe it, it's, it's best to, um, to give a kind of a visual picture on this. Mm. There is... Um, a portion of the uh, Hebrew Bible that's read on Rosh Hashanah, on the Jewish New Year, which begins this, this season. And that is Genesis 22, which tells the story of how God called out to Abraham, 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 and we read Abraham said, here I am. And as we read through the chapter, we discover God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain that God will show to Abraham. You read the chapter through, and Abraham goes with Isaac. They go up the mountain. They've got the the wood. They've got the ropes. They've got what they need for an altar. And and Isaac says, where's the lamb? We've got everything else. Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide, my son. They get up to the top. And we read that Abraham bound Isaac up on the altar and raised his hand with the knife in the hand to obey God and to kill Isaac. And suddenly the angel of the Lord cries out again, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. And then he says, do not touch the boy. Do not lay a hand on him. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you love God because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Mm. And this is read every Rosh Hashanah. lot of commentary, a lot of debate. What does it mean? Um, is it some sort of an argument against human sacrifice? We, we know God doesn't like human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is it read on this occasion because, what do you know, at the end of the story, they look up, there's a ram caught by its horns in the bushes, and they sacrifice the ram instead of Isaac. Well, we blow the ram's horn during these holidays, so maybe that's the connection. Well, let me tell you about a, a well-known Jewish painter named Marc Chagall, a French painter. 
very well known for um, his Bible scenes. He did the windows of the 12 tribes and the Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem, uh, painted scenes of his life in Eastern Europe. Well, one of his Bible scenes is called The Sacrifice of Isaac. And it's kind of a remarkable um, painting because he's got in the foreground the scene with Isaac on the altar and, and Abraham has his hand raised with the knife. And in the background, you see the angel of the Lord. In the background, you see the ram in the bushes. And then in the upper right of the painting, the upper right corner, there's a small miniature scene of Jesus carrying the cross mm. with the color red dripping down onto the scene of Abraham and mm. Isaac. Now, Mark Chagall was not a Christian, was not a follower of Jesus, was not a Messianic Jew. He viewed Jesus as a martyr, as a very Jewish man who suffered the faith that many Jews did over the centuries. But even though that's not exactly the biblical picture of who Jesus is, he still made this connection between the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and the New Testament. Hmm. And I think when you go into John's Gospel, you have that verse that is probably the most famous New Testament verse, so John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, some translations say only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Well, it seems to me that John was reflecting back on the story in Genesis 22, that just as Abraham willingly offered his only son in obedience to God, so God the Father offered his son, who went willingly to his death for us. Difference being that in place of Isaac, a ram was uh, given by God. But with God's son, Yeshua, he went fully to his death so that he could be the atonement uh, for our sins. Mm. And you've got this wonderful picture connection right there in terms of uh, what God did in Jesus and what was going on in the Old Testament. And when you were uh, in college working on your bachelor's degree at Syracuse University, Yom Kippur must have had a special meaning for you after you met Jesus. Well, as a Christian, you know, it's looking back with uh, thankfulness to the fact that Jesus' death has has atoned for our sins, and that when we sin, yes, we should repent, of course, but now that sacrifice has been provided for all time. And the book of Hebrews says this as well, tells us that, that Jesus laid down his life as the sacrifice for all time, and interestingly also tells us that uh, Jesus is uh, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, I think I said on the last program, you know, my, my family, by tradition, are kohanim, we're priests. Um, mm -hmm. means in the synagogue service we can get certain honors. But in the Bible, it meant that that was officiating at the sacrifices. And the high priest, particularly, and only him, there were many priests, just one high priest. Well, each year on Yom Kippur, he would go into the, the holiest part of the tabernacle or the temple which was the holy building. But he went in once a year to the very inmost part where he made atonement for the sins of the nation committed during the previous year. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not only the sacrifice, but he's also the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, who entered what it calls a heavenly sanctuary and made atonement for us. Mm. 
So it kind of mixes in the metaphors there. He's both the sacrifice and the one offering the sacrifice. But the cumulative picture is that we have something very unique in Jesus. Um, basically, he became our Yom Kippur uh, sacrifice. He became the high priest who on Yom Kippur would enter the house of God and make that atonement for us. A hmm. uh, very rich image, a uh, very amazing image, and it closely ties in uh, Jesus to what happens on Yom Kippur. Hmm. Dr. Rich Robinson with Jews for Jesus. Do you mind leading us in prayer? I know we have Jewish listeners who are not believers in Jesus. We also have a lot of Gentiles out there who are hearing you do a bit of exegesis for us out of, well, essentially the faith that you have found in Christ Jesus as a young man. Do you mind leading us in prayer? Be happy to, Charles. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King, we thank you for those of us who have come to know the atonement that is in Yeshua, in Jesus. And at this time of year, it's appropriate to wish Lashana Tova, may uh, you have a good year and a healthy year to all the listeners of this program, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. I pray, Lord, that those who do not yet believe that Jesus is the Messiah who atoned for us might consider that, might uh, think about that this year. I pray that those who might not think about sin at any other time of year might consider that the problems of this world are rooted in the human heart and the sin in our lives that God sent Jesus to heal. And for all listeners, Father, I, I just want to pray that those who don't know you may come to know you through Yeshua, that those who do know you may rejoice because you have provided us final and everlasting atonement from our sins and reconciled us to you. Yes. Yom Kippur for these people is, is a time of thanksgiving, a time of remembering that yes, that Yom Kippur sacrifice has been made. I pray all this Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King, in the name of Yeshua, Jesus, our Messiah, and our Lord. Amen. Haven Today, Finding the Gospel in the Jewish Holy Days. A special thanks again to Rich Robinson for joining us here on the program. Last Sunday afternoon, I sat down with a friend of mine in his backyard here in Southern California, but he was born in Brooklyn, New York, in one of those famous brownstones. He was born an Orthodox Jew, and he went eight years to Hebrew school. He can read Hebrew. He understands Hebrew. More than that, he understands Judaism. And more than that, he came to California to go to college, met his wife, Lynn is a Gentile, and then some young guy came into his life and challenged him and actually knew the Hebrew Bible better than Harvey did. And that surprised him. What was most fascinating about this young man is that he came to me with the outrageous claim that Jesus Christ, what we understood and who we understood to be the God of the Gentiles, that he was in fact the long-awaited Jewish Messiah who came to visit his people 2,000 years ago, who presented himself to the nation of Israel as the Messiah to the Jewish nation, mm. that he was crucified and buried and he was resurrected, 
and that the first group of early believers in Christianity were all Jewish. Hmm. And he exhorted me to engage with him in this debate and simply out of how incensed I was by this claim, a claim that I had never heard living in New York during those years growing up and even in those formative years in California, I had never heard the claim that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Mm. So I had engaged this young man in a debate for almost two years to do nothing other than from my own Hebrew scriptures prove to him mm -hmm. that this could not be so. Mm. And we read many books together. We poured over the messianic prophecies in the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. And now this friend was telling me about a suffering servant who would come and he would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. But coming from the background that I did and being so neg negatively predisposed to anything Christian, although this friend exhorted me to open up the New Covenant scriptures and to read about this Lamb who called Israel to repentance, which was a theme I was so familiar with because every prophet in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew scriptures, this. Yes, was this. calling people in Israel to repentance. Mm -hmm. But he said to me at one point in this debate that I've answered all your questions. You must now open up the book and read it for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I opened it up and I read the gospel that was written by our Jewish brother, Matthew. And I closed Matthew and I wept because I had never read such a Jewish book. Mm. And I didn't even have a need to go any further. I was utterly convinced that the roots to Christianity were not only Jewish, but that the completion to my own understanding of who I was as a Jew and who I am as a Jew today mm. was in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. Mm. Harvey Katzen, thank you. Let's talk about a little more about Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement, it's considered uh, the festival, the, and I hate to call it a holiday, although it is referred to as a holiday in Israel today, but it's more serious than that, isn't it? Well, it's much more serious than that. The, the, the feasts of Israel, the feasts of the Lord that were given to Israel, and you could find all of them in Leviticus Le chapter 23. 23 yes. There are these wonderful seven annual feasts of Israel. And most of them are great joyous occasions. Mm -hmm. But Yom Kippur is not. Yom Kippur is the most somber, the most awesome, the most introspective day for Jewish people. It's the day when justice is done. It's the day when decisions are made by God about the future of each individual Jew. The book of life enters into this, figures into this. It is the day when God writes those names into the book of life. It is, it is D-Day for the Jewish people. It is known as the Sabbath of Sabbaths. It is the highest and holiest day on the Jew Jewish calendar. And when we read in places like Leviticus 19, where God says to his people Israel, he says, I want you to be holy 
just like I am, I am holy. holy. How can that be? Mm. How can we come into a position of holiness that God commands for us? And in those wonderful feasts, these moadim, these appointed days that God had set on his calendar, these yearly days that God had chosen to meet with his people every year, year, year after year, he gives this one day that the commonwealth, the community of Israel can come together and have their, tin, their sins covered up and atoned for for the next full year. Mm. And this was done through the animal sacrificial system. But truly what Yom Kippur is really about is that it points to something else, something else that would not be just temporary, something that would be permanent. Mm. The writer to the Hebrews in the New Covenant scriptures talks about a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. The writer says that the blood of bulls and goats mm. can never take away sins permanently. Mm. And Israel, even though their sins were covered from year to year, always struggled with the guilt and the conscience of sin. But the prophet Jeremiah talked about one day a new covenant would be brought to Israel. Jeremiah records that it won't be like the old covenant where God took Israel by the hand out of the land of Egypt. It'll be a new covenant where God won't write his laws on tablets of stone any longer, but he'll write them on the hearts of men. And everyone who will partake in this covenant will know God from the least of them to the greatest of mm. them. And the writer to the Hebrews talks about a better high priest and a better sacrifice and a better covenant, mm -hmm. this new covenant that Jeremiah clearly talks about and is reiterated again in this wonderful book to the Hebrew people in the new covenant scriptures. And of course, they're talking about the once for all sacrifice for sin, the sacrifice of the true lamb of God who gave his life for the sins of his people. And we look now to Jesus, to Yeshua, to the Messiah of Israel as the one who has paid the full price for the full atonement for all time. Must have been an amazing day. What was it like that day when you finally discovered Christ Jesus, Yeshua, was your Savior and your sins were covered? Well, it was the most wonderful day and it was the most frightening day. Mm. Because I think as a Jew, probably about the worst thing a Jewish son could do is look to Jesus as his Messiah and his Lord to give his life to Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. It's not uncommon for a Jewish family, especially one with the Orthodox roots that I had, to have a funeral for one of their children that did something as dramatic as defect to Christianity. Mm. So I knew that this was a day that although I was so thrilled and so excited and the burden of my own inequities, my own sins, the scripture calls them, was lifted from me because I was now putting my faith and my trust 
in the Jewish Messiah who had died as my Kippurah, as my covering, as my once-for-all atonement, I also knew that I had to face my Jewish family and tell them what their son had done. Hmm. But I did that not with fear. I did that with gladness because I knew that I had found the reason for who I was as a Jew. And I had prayed and had hoped that my own family would embrace Jesus in the same way that I did. If you joined us as the program's underway, this is Haven Today, Finding the Gospel in the Jewish Holy Days. And a special thanks to Harvey Katzen for sharing a little bit with us here on the program. We're looking this week at the Jewish feasts. And in Judaism, these are the High Holy Days, the 10 days between New Year's Day, Rosh Hashanah, last Wednesday, and the Sabbath of Sabbaths, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, as this week ends. What I want us to see are that these feasts and festivals interact with and illuminate the teachings of Jesus, the writings of the New Testament, and the message of the Gospel. This is the time of year when observing Jews seek to repent sincerely, to earnestly pray and fast, to do good deeds, and hope that their name is included another year in God's book of life. I want us to go back to the backyard of my friend Harvey Katz, and I was with him last Sunday afternoon. I want us to talk about how, since there is no more temple, since there is no more Jewish daily animal sacrifice, how Jews seek atonement for their sins. And of course, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That doesn't sound good in the world we live in today, and yet that's what the Bible teaches. Now, just before Harvey and I began to talk, we watched a little video he had put together. It was filmed in the ultra-Orthodox section, the Maya Sharim in Jerusalem. So I asked Harvey, to explain to me how Jews find atonement of sin today. Well, Charles, it's a great question, and it's a question I get asked most often by brothers and sisters who are Jewish who don't quite understand the need for blood atonement today as given uh, to the nation of Israel in the Torah. As we know, Israel today is without a temple, and the temple sacrifices are no longer, and Israel today is without a priesthood. Uh, They are without an altar where the blood sacrifices would take place. And when Judaism began to reorganize, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and Jews were dispersed from Jerusalem, many alternative forms of atonement began to take shape. The rabbis knew that if Judaism was going to continue, that they would be the ones who would lead the Jews again to a place of peace and reconciliation with the God of Israel. Mm -hmm. So what are Jews today doing for atonement if they don't have the temple to bring those sacrifices to and the priesthood no longer exists? Well, today, modern Judaism would say that all that is needed today is three things. Sincere repentance, earnest prayer, and the doing of good deeds. And of course, uh, as we Jews know, that on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, 
we have a need also to afflict our souls. Mm -hmm. And modern Judaism uh, believes that afflicting our souls today is fasting for the 24-hour period of Yom Kippur. Many forms of atonement have taken shape over the years, and one very interesting form that we see not only in the ultra-Orthodox sections of Israel, but uh, even in uh, neighborhoods in Brooklyn today, uh, is a form of atonement called kaparot, where there is still a sense and an understanding that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins, and that although prayer and the doing of good deeds and shuvah, the repentance or turning from our sins and turning to God are so important. But they're not enough. But they're not enough. Hmm. They sense there is still a need for blood. So in this ceremony of Kaparot, uh, a religious leader will take a chicken, and a live chicken, and wave it over the head of the one that atonement is being made for, mm -hmm. uh, say some designated prayers, sacrifice the chicken, spill the blood of the chicken, and then the chicken is given to the poor or the needy. Today in Jerusalem, in these ultra-Orthodox communities, there still is a sense that blood is needed for atonement. And as the writers in the Bret Chadashah, in the New Covenant, say, that without the shedding of blood, we can never have our sins remitted. Hmm. What are we seeing in this video that you put together? Well, we're seeing uh, a section of the Kaparot ceremony uh, in Jerusalem several years ago. It's in the Maya Sharim. I've walked through it's there the more Shireem, than once. Exactly. Yes, where the ultra-Orthodox live. Exactly. Outsiders are not privy to coming into this. This mm -hmm. was filmed um, uh, covertly, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, anybody could go online and, and, and Google the Kaparot ceremony and find lots of videos of this going on, again, not only in Israel, but here in the United States as well. And we're, we're seeing during this holiest day of the Jewish year, mm -hmm. when the Jewish soul is agonizing to know whether his sins will be forgiven for the year to come, when they have just gone through the 10 most somber, introspective days of the Jewish calendar, the Yomim Noraim, the 10 days of awe that started at Rosh Hashanah on the Jewish New Year. Last uh, a week ago, A Wednesday. week ago, exactly. And uh, during these 10 days, when the scales are balanced mm -hmm. and God's decisions are made for each individual according to the understanding of observant Jewish people, that the only hope is for God to accept some sacrifice mm. that will cover up their sins from one year to the next. When we say Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that root word Kippur means to cover over, uh, to make atonement for, to be a satisfaction for something. And even though this atonement would merely cover up a Jew's sins year to year, it could never take away the guilt and the stain 
like the once-for-all sacrifice for sin Mm. in Jesus the Messiah. I asked my friend Harvey Katzen if he would lead us in prayer for both Jews and Gentiles. Well, let's say Avinu Malkenu, our Father and our King. Father, you are so wonderful in how you orchestrate situations and bring people with messages and information. And in your great providence, in your great compassion, and in your wonderful grace, those who have ears that are open to hear and those who have eyes that are open to see, you will present yourself clearly to them. And I'm so thankful and so grateful that you have done this for me. And for those of my Jewish brothers and sisters who are listening now who have not considered Jesus or have considered him but are not willing to pay the price, there is no atonement in any other name but the name of Jesus. And I encourage you to examine the things of Christ, especially during these 10 days of awe, not to worry that the scales are going to be balanced in just a few days, but to know that you can have eternal life and eternal peace with the Messiah to the Jewish people, the Messiah of Israel, and for my brothers and sisters who are not Jewish, I urge you to have an appreciation for the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, But even for you, there is no forgiveness, there is no atonement, there is no other sacrifice, there is nothing else that you can do but come to Jesus. And the scriptures say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you too shall be saved. And on this Yom Kippur, in just a few days, Jewish or Gentile, your name will be forever written into the book of life. Mm. I pray that you would have the courage to accept and believe the only truth, the truth of the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, I pray in the name of Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Amen. Harvey Katzen, uh, born into an Orthodox Jewish home and now serving the King of Kings, uh, Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us here on the program. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for joining us. I'm Charles Morris here on a very special weekend for Jews around the world. This is Yom Kippur, the highest of all holy days. And we're just coming through 10 holy days And that started with Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year's Day. Let's go back to San Francisco. Let's go to the headquarters of Jews for Jesus. I want you to meet Susan Perlman. Susan, welcome for the very first time to Haven today. Lashana Tova, Charles, (laughs) which means Happy New Year. (laughs) It is that time of year, isn't it? Uh, We're talking about not just the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, but Yom Kippur as well, uh, which is this week. Can you just share with us how you, as someone who is Jewish, met Yeshua as your Lord and Savior? 
Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, I grew up in a, a traditional Jewish home um, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, you did not need a passport to get into Brooklyn, <laughs> but it, it was its own country in many yes. ways. And uh, I grew up thinking that the whole world was Jewish. Um, my school uh, had Jewish teachers. The shop owners were all Jewish. My neighbors were all Jewish. I remember as a child, um, I really took my religion very seriously. Um, then when uh, I reached the age of 12, my father died mm. very suddenly, very mm. um, much a shock to the whole family. It was a heart attack. And, um, and it really put me in touch with uh, my own mortality and with the big issues of life, you know, what happens after we die. Yes. And uh, I remember the rabbi came to our home uh, during the seven days of mourning, it's called sitting shiva, and, uh, and I was a rather precocious 12-year-old, and, and uh, I asked him very earnestly, I said, is, is my daddy in heaven now? He said, well, we can't know for sure what, what lies beyond the grave, uh, but um, your father was a good man, and, you know, we can, we can hope that maybe, you know, there's something, something more. And I have to tell you that it was a very inadequate answer for me. Um, I, I didn't think that the rabbi was sure that there was anything uh, more. And if there wasn't, then why were we following all these traditions? Mm -hmm. uh, why were we trying to be good? Yes. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I, I didn't reject my, my Jewish heritage and my upbringing as a result of that, but the actual formal part of the religion, uh, you know, just didn't take on the same meaning anymore. And uh, I remember um, uh, it wasn't until I was um, out of college that I actually met uh, someone who kind of challenged me with regard to faith and religion. And, and he was a Christian uh, who I met on a street corner in New York City. Uh, and uh, I remember listening to him uh, talk about uh, the gospel, which was the first time I'd really had it presented to me as an, a, a, as something that was relevant in my life. And I was very polite, and I said to him, well, you need to know something. I'm Jewish. Hmm. Hmm. See, I thought by telling him that I was Jewish that he would probably realize that I was the wrong person for him to share his faith with. He would give up, right. That. Yes. He'd give up, or he'd apologize, or he would do something that acknowledged the fact that I have my own my own faith, my own religion. But instead, he said, well, I think it's great that you're Jewish. Hmm. Uh, well, I thought it was pretty good that I was Jewish, but <laughs> I didn't understand why he thought it was so good. And he said, my Savior is a Jew. And, uh, and, and all the writers um, of the New Testament were Jewish. Hmm. And uh, and. I really hadn't considered that at all. I mean, my exposure to Christianity and to Jesus was through art and literature and films. And, um, and Jesus looked more like the God of the Norwegians mm. to me than the King of Israel. Mm. Yes. So um, all of this was really um, rather revolutionary a comment from him to me. And I was challenged. He took me to a church. Um, which I felt that I needed to be liberal and open-minded enough to at least go to a service mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I was exposed to other Christians who actually knew the Scripture, knew the Word of God by heart. Um, they were quoting verses from the Bible to me. Including the Hebrew uh, Bible. And I was, 
the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, I mean, my Bible. Mm. They knew my Bible better than I knew mm. it. And, uh, and I kind of felt like uh, I at least needed to open it up and see for myself. Oh, I knew some Bible stories and so on, but I'd never really seriously read the, the Hebrew scriptures. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I just started reading um, in Genesis. I, I just opened up the Bible at the beginning and just, mm-hmm. just kept reading. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated. Um, I think the thing that most fascinated me was the fact that uh, this was not merely a story, but that this was something that was bigger than, than, than me, um, than my universe as I knew it. Uh, I mean, here was the, the God, the creator of the universe, uh, you know, speaking to his people. And, um, and I found myself um, really somewhat in awe mm. of, of the scriptures. And I, I mm. was gripped mostly by, I think, the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. Um, and yes. it really spoke to me, you know, and particularly the sixth verse where it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I mean, think of it. Mm. Every Yom Kippur, I would be in, in, in synagogue with my family. We would be praying. We would be pounding on our chest, begging God to forgive us, uh, to hear our prayers, that we might have our names written in his book of life for the coming year. And one came. He came to do that all for us. Wow. Uh, wow. And it was all right there in, in, the, in the prophet Isaiah's words. I said, God, I don't know if you're real. I don't know if what they're saying about Jesus is true. But uh, if it is, I, I know that my life is not right and it can't be right unless I have some way of connecting with you. Uh, and if Jesus is the way, then I'm ready to accept him. And, uh, and I just felt the Lord answering me in a very quiet way, saying, yeah, Jesus is my son, and, you know, I forgive you, and come, come into my presence. It was that kind of a feeling. And, and that was the start of uh, uh, a whole new life. The rest <laughs> a wonderful of your life. life. Absolutely. The rest of my life. Susan Perlman with Jews for Jesus. Thank you for sharing your story with us on Haven Today. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for joining us on Great Stories with Charles Morris. And I'm so grateful for my friends, Rich Robinson, Harvey Katzen, and Susan Perlman, who joined me here on this Haven Today for these interviews back in 2013. Now, for more episodes like this, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please help us get the word out by leaving a five-star review. You can also go to haventoday.org and sign up for our weekly email and discover additional episodes posted on our blog. And as always, thank you for joining me again on Great Stories with Charles Morris. Mm -hmm.